On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about the infallibility of the Bible. Yeah, it's a subject that's very important. It's important to us because if we, if we sh- our faith should be well founded upon a solid, dependable revelation from God. But it's also important so that we can answer those who have for centuries tried to tear down the Bible and claim it's full of errors. So it's important to study from a couple different perspectives. All right, we're going to get started, and we're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is a virtual bible study for thursday april 15th 2021 tax day it used to be it's not the day they gave us extension this <laughs> boy year. saved yeah. by the bell i that helped me out quite <laughs> have you a not bit. done yours yet no i haven't oh, man. uh well, I have time. I'll, I'll get them done early this year. Uh, my name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Great to be with you tonight, Glad Jacob. to be with you. Kyle. Great to have you back. By the oh, way, if you man. forgot how to do anything over there, ask yeah. us, and we'll try to maybe tell you. you. Maybe you can see <laughs> over here and help. Yeah. Kyle's behind the controls. Kyle, is that you back there? Yeah, yeah it's good to be uh, here. Good to see you yeah. as well. And, and uh, well, we've got a special guest tonight. Well, yeah. not, not He's always a guest, but he's a little more special tonight. Yeah, one of our most loyal listeners, uh, well, two of our most loyal listeners are in studio with us tonight, Dwight and Michelle Bouvette from Ames, Iowa. All yeah. the way from Ames, Iowa are visiting in Columbia tonight, and they are, they are here in person in the Virtual Bible Study studio. Dwight, great to have you with us. You Thank usually you. send us an email. Tonight you'll have to verbally give your responses to our questions. All right, that sounds good. And okay. now, that, now that he's seen the studio, he's probably a lot less impressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't know we were in a closet. Yeah. Um, well, we're glad that you're with us on the other end of the line tonight, and we want to hear from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com, and we would appreciate your comments in the chat room if you're watching us live at the bottom of your video feed. Uh, send in your comments there. You can sign in. You can sign, remain anonymous if you like and share your comments with other listeners on this important topic tonight. And I'm really hoping I don't mess up the word infallibility tonight. You don't want to make a mistake on that word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we always tell you, get on our update list. If you're not getting an update, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com so we can put you on our list. And you'll get the update describing our topic for discussion you still you're doing that giveaway program? Yeah, free giveaway, free bumper stickers to all who want them. So you can send in to, uh, again, collegeview.com. There's a car out in the lo- a parking lot tonight with Iowa plates that has a, a virtual Bible study sticker go. on it. There you go. So send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. And you can get on our update list. Midday Thursday, you'll get an update telling what we're going to talk about. And here's the update that we sent out earlier today. Number one, is it a viable position to say the Bible is mostly accurate, but but it may be wrong on a few points? Is that, does that work? Can you can you take that position? Is it an all or nothing thing? Yeah. Number two, if the Bible is truly inspired, does that guarantee that non-essential details or trivialities are accurate? And and I and I offered one example. Uh, 
Why, if all of the Bible is inspired, would Paul mention his cloak that he left behind in 2 Timothy 4, verse 13? Uh, is there any value to a reference like that? Is that just purely some some uninspired gibberish that Paul threw in at the end of that epistle? Number three, give examples from the Bible that show an emphasis placed on even minor details and wording. Number four, how do you respond to critics who say that the Bible is wrong on historical details? Number five, does the fact that we don't have the original documents of the Bible make it impossible to trust the scriptures? And number six, do the biblical accounts of miracles prove that it's impossible to believe what the Bible says? All right. All right. Good good questions there. And very important, uh, our faith is rooted in the scriptures and we need to understand about the Bible and ask the question, is it infallible? Yeah. Let's take this first one. Can we, can, we take, can we reasonably take the position that the Bible is mostly true, but it, it may be wrong on some points. And, uh, you know, so, but, but mainly the Bible is a true book. I, I think most of those who are listening tonight will agree with us that that is really an unworkable position. For exactly this reason, how would we know one from the other? How would we know that this is a true point in the Bible, that one is not true? Who gets to make that determination? And so you used the expression earlier, Jacob, I think it's all or nothing. It is is either all an infallibly accurate revelation from God, or we don't have anything. Exactly. You know, you think about it, uh, what, you know, I like jelly beans. What if you had a bowl of jelly beans, Dwight? And uh, I told you that every jelly bean in here is a good one, except I put one bad jelly bean There's in There's a the poison bowl. one in there. Uh, you going to be eating any of the jelly beans out of that bowl? Probably not. No, no. It's a, you, you don't know what to trust. And the same is true for us in the Scriptures. If, if it's not all from God, then what part of it do we trust? And who gets to determine what we take and what we don't take? Yeah, because if you if you try to if you try to clamp down on me over something that I'm doing, I could just come right back to you and say, well, that part of the Bible's not not accurate, not true, not inspired. I don't I don't live by that part because I, I reject that part as not being from God. Well, and you could do that about anything. Well, and as ridiculous as it sounds, that's what's happening in the religious world today. Yeah, yeah. These so-called uh, religious scholars have decided that certain parts of the Bible don't have to be uh, accepted, and you can sort of pick and choose. Uh, if you don't like what it says, well, then uh, the writer was a little bit a bigot. Uh, he was prejudiced. Uh, he was uh, he was tarnished by the societal norms of the day. And just ignore that part of the Bible. Yeah. For instance, what Paul wrote about women. Yeah. That was completely off base. Yeah. You know, he he did, he he was obviously a, a male chauvinist, like all were in his day. He was a and homophobe. We've out, and, we've out, and he's a homophobe, and we've outgrown all that stuff. Yeah. But that's what people are doing. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that the, the the scripture says it's from God. Notice in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, it's all from God. And, of course, the scripture says, like in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God cannot lie. So God... If the scripture is not all from him, then there's then there's some lying going on here from a God who supposedly can't lie. We again, I would just say we have basically got nothing if we don't trust the Bible to be totally and completely infallible from God. Dwight thought. 
Yeah, I, I had the both of those scriptures written down, 2 Timothy 3 and Numbers 23. And and then along with that, um, over in Titus chapter 1, where Paul, when Paul wrote, In hope of eternal, uh, of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised um, long ages ago. So God is one who does not lie. He, he holds to, to the truth. He yeah. is truth. Exactly right. So, again, I, I think that first question is an important one, but I think it's got to be a pretty obvious answer to those of us who, who, who have confidence in the Word of God. Here's what Kent had to say about it from Calhoun, Georgia. Good to hear from Kent tonight. The view of the Bible is mostly accurate as false. Second Timothy 3, verses 15 through 17 affirms that the Bible is inspired of God. Such necessitates plenary verbal inspiration. This is an either-or position. Either the Bible constitutes the Word of God or it does not. The case being that the Bible is the Word of God, such means that, that it plenary... And, plenary means full or complete. And verbally, and it, it is... Plen- word for word. And it, it is plenary and verbally inspired of God. Yeah, thank yeah. you for that, Ken. And then Jim's up in Kentucky. Jim, good to hear from you as well. It is wrong to say the Bible is mostly accurate, but wrong on a few points. The Bible claims to be the Word of God and thus infallible. If it is wrong, it cannot be the Word of God. It is correct to say that there are errors in translation... He references Acts chapter 12, verse 4. That's where the King James translators translated Passover as Easter. Okay. But that's an error in the English translation, not in the original text. Not in the original. The original text is clearly referencing Passover, but the King James translators tried to sneak the word Easter in there. All right. Peter was inspired to remind us that we are born of the word of God, uh, of the word of God, which is corrupt, incorruptible, 1 Peter 1, verses, verse 23. We cannot be made incorruptible by that which is corrupted. Jesus said the word of God cannot be broken, John 10, verse 35. And then finally, Grant's up in Franklin, Tennessee tonight. Good to hear from Grant. He says, no, it is not uh, okay to say that the Bible is mostly accurate, but maybe wrong at a few points. Second Timothy 3, verse 16 states, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. Thank you, yeah. Grant. Yeah, I think your illustration about the jelly beans is, is, I mean, that perfectly illustrates. I remember an old story about uh, a farmer who uh, was having trouble with the kids in town would come out and steal watermelons out of his watermelon patch. Oh, man, just infuriated him. And so he he wrote a sign and stuck it out by his watermelons and said, I have poisoned one of these watermelons. Well, he came back the next day, and the kids had written, we poisoned another one. Well, when you do that, if yeah. that's true, you can't trust any of the watermelons. Now you've got to no. throw the whole patch out yeah. because you don't know which one's good and which one's bad. That's what we would be like if, if the Bible has a, even some errors, even just a few errors. How would we know where they are? 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com in the chat room tonight. We have to defend the infallibility of the Bible. It is an underpinning of our faith. If we do not uh, defend the fact that it is infallible, not the translations, we're not in defense of the translation, but in, we're in defending the original text from God. If it's not infallible, then we have nothing in the Bible. Uh, and we want to hear your thoughts on that subject tonight. Yeah, get in the chat room tonight and uh, join in our discussion. All right, I think that's a pretty easy one. That's probably the easy question for tonight. Let's, let's take the next one. We've got time. Yeah, let's grab another one here, Jacob. Number two, if the Bible is truly inspired... Does that guarantee that non-essential details or trivialities are accurate? Um, again, we've got a little bit of a problem. How, how do I determine what is non-essential or trivial? Yeah, that's a little dangerous, calling something in, the, in God's word trivial. Yeah. 
And and so you know we got a very similar problem here. Well, don't worry about that because that that's really a triviality that does not matter too much. Uh, we don't have to you know we don't have to worry about those details because they don't matter. Well, who gets to decide what matters and what doesn't matter? I, I gave an example uh, of something in Second Timothy chapter four. We remember that Second Timothy was the last epistle written by the Apostle Paul, probably before he was executed in his second Roman imprisonment. In Second Timothy chapter uh, three, excuse me, chapter four, Second Timothy chapter four, verse thirteen, he he says to Timothy, "The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments." Well, why in the world is that in there? You know, that, that that just seems to be like a personal side note of, from Paul to Timothy. Uh, that's, that's what some would label as a triviality or a non-essential detail. Uh, and so they say, well, you know, those things may not even belong there. That may just be sort of something extra that... Paul decided to scribble in on his own at the end of that. Yeah, you know, like getting the word from here to there was not, they couldn't send text messages, so the letter was going. He might as well just put a little, maybe a little, it was on a post-it note. Did they have post-it notes? Yeah, or, or a PS. PS, yeah, right. send the cloak that I right. left behind. Yeah. But, you know, commentators through the years have tried to show that even statements like that in Scripture have some value to it. Uh, for instance, you could ask, why did Paul leave that cloak behind in Troas? Does that indicate, was he forced to leave uh, under duress? Uh, was he, does, does that indicate that he was still, even at this late date in his life, still under intense persecution? Uh, uh, it might even show something like how Paul had sacrificially served the Lord to the point that he needed that old cloak to be brought to him. He may not have had funds to buy another cloak. Uh, uh, he, he mentions in, in that same context that winter was coming on. And, and so it, it may indicate that due to his sacrificial service through the years, he didn't have a lot of extra money to be buying extra clothes for winter. Uh, it may indicate that, he, that some of the, he was in, we, we believe he was writing that letter from Rome. Uh, he, he he was rearrested, a second Roman imprisonment. Why weren't some of the brethren in Rome taking care of him? You know, what, maybe there's some implication in that about the, the care of those brethren in Rome who maybe had turned against him. Uh, he, he said, uh, "No one stood with him." In verse 14 of chapter four. So again. Uh, some lessons to be learned from them. One thing, just Paul's determination. I mean, no matter what, uh, good times or bad, he was going to be faithful to the Lord. Yeah. He's not complaining here. He says, just if you can't bring that close. Well, we, see that we see the human side. I mean, of, of him. Yeah. We, see, we see he had need and maybe some discouragement. And, and we can take uh, some courage and some, and some consolation from the fact that well, Paul had difficult times. We can go through them as well. Yeah. Dwight, it, did you have a thought on that? Yeah, well, I, as I was looking at that, it's, it was my thought that, you know, being Paul was in prison, he, and he was writing this letter to Timothy, it was my thought that he was, he was asking a request of him to, to bring him that simply because 
winter was coming on. He, it was a necessity that he thought that he needed. And, you know, that's what we are to do. We're supposed to help one another. And, and Paul put that out as a request. And, and I'm sure that Timothy um, helped him in that area. Yeah, I've always thought I've always thought that in that very context, verse nine, Second Timothy four, verse nine, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Uh, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatian. Only Luke is with me. And then he says later in the chapter, verse twenty, do thy diligence to come before winter. You know, he, he was lonely. Uh, he, he needed the support of his brethren. And those personal comments convey to us just the price that he was paying. And the humanity of Paul, I think, is seen so clearly in those final words there in, in 2 Timothy 4. What about all the salutations that, uh, at the end of these books? I mean, what's the purpose of that, you wonder? Well, there's lessons that we can learn. Sure. What about verse 20 of the same chapter? Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Why would you put in there that he was sick? He could, by the time this letter got there, he may have been even back to normal health. Yeah. Or dead. Or dead. Yeah. But, but, but why would you personal references show that these are real people yep. really involved in the service of the Lord? Well, we can learn things about that statement, that Paul yeah. would leave someone there sick. Well, Paul could work miracles. Why did he leave Trophimus sick? Well, I've always made the point from that that miracles weren't just for the purpose of healing sick so people. So there's things for us to learn yeah. is what you're saying with these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. We need to get a break. We'll get our emailers' uh, comments on that. Or what about these so-called trivialities in the Bible? Are they really trivial after all? And uh, do they show that the Bible's not fully inspired, not infallible? And we'll get your comments in the chat room as well. We're going to get a break, and we'll continue right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Here's a quick thought. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. 1 Corinthians 3.18 What a paradox. Be willing to become a fool in order to become wise? Is your pride getting in the way of true wisdom? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Seize the day. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one who gets burned. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. And we're back on the program as we talk about uh, the infallibility of the Bible tonight. Brian's in California in the chat room tonight. He said the world points to seeming contradictions in arguing its uh, fallibility, the Bible's fallibility. If you search and use reason, you can make a sound conclusion which reconciles one to the other. For example, Jehoiakim's age when becoming king in Second Corinthians or Second Kings twenty-four verse eight and Second Chronicles thirty-nine verse nine, we can, can discern truth if honestly seeking and using proper hermeneutics. Yeah. So you know that uh, sometimes people will throw out a difference in numbers or ages. It, uh, there's lots of explanations as to why two references, for instance, to King Jehoiakim's age. Uh, there's a lot of explanations as to why they might not be exactly the same in two different accounts. Uh, for instance, if you had a child that was two years and ten months old, 
you 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 might say, well, she, she's two. But you might also say, well, she's three. She's about three. You know, there are explanations like that. There there may be some scribal errors in the way they copied down numbers in particular. A lot of those supposed contradictions involve numbers, and there may be some scribal errors in that. Uh, But there have been been volumes written. Uh, John Haley wrote a book, Alleged Contradictions of the Bible. He lists hundreds of supposed contradictions of the Bible and then explains how each one of them can be sort of proven to not be a contradiction. No. So uh, skeptics have tried for forever to try and show that the Bible contradicts, but they haven't been able to sustain one. And it only takes one plausible explanation to disregard any supposed contradiction. Right. And uh, you come up with one possible explanation, then you could just throw that. You only need, as you say, you only need one. If you, but in many instances, there are multiple possible explanations. And these ones with numbers are the ones that really get me. You know, if I'm going to make up a book and I'm going to try and pass it off as something real, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to to push a, some kind of farce on someone. Don't you think I'd do a little proofreading and just say, well, there, that says four and this one says five? There's an obvious error. You know, yeah, that's yeah. that's that's the first one that gets marked off the list if I'm yeah. trying to pass off some kind of fake here yeah yeah exactly right so all right let's see what our emailers say jay all right kent says uh yes it does uh uh guarantee that the non-essential details are accurate kent says just exactly why paul mentioned his cloak as recorded in second Timothy 4 verse 13 we do not know obviously god gave such information to us for a particular reason perhaps he desired to demonstrate a, a recognition of a specific realization of Paul's physical needs, or to confirm a personal connection that Paul had in Troas. Yeah, so there are reasons why God may have put it in there, and we should not view them as trivial. Um, Jim says, one would have to ask, what are trivial details? Time, place, person, events, items, outcomes? If these are trivial, then would it be okay to have the wrong time, place, surrounding events, and outcome for the birth of Jesus? If he really did not die, would that be trivial? Is the mention of his napkin being left in the tomb, John 20, verses 4 through 7, a trivial event? What is meant by trivial? If the word of God is given to cause us to to believe, John 20, verses 30 and 31, then at what point would it be considered okay to ignore the things which are considered trivial? Maybe we consider it trivial because we do not understand the whole purpose of God. Maybe it is we who have deemed something trivial, not God. I believe each time we read through the accounts given in the Bible, something we missed before comes into view, like pieces in a puzzle. What we may have missed the first time fits perfectly the next. I think you're right, Jim. Good points. And then Grant says, uh, yes, even down to the dotting of the I and crossing the T, God being the creator of all things would know all the minute details of his creation. Exactly right. Okay. Good points, guys. Appreciate your input on that. Um, So moving on, uh, our third question was, Give examples from the Bible that show an emphasis placed on even minor details and wording. Uh, one that I, I've always liked to illustrate is what, how, how, how thoroughly did Jesus believe that the scriptures were inspired? Obviously, the scriptures that Jesus could reference were only the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament had been written yet. But notice in, uh, in, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was being challenged by the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, of course, uh, believed that there was no life beyond the grave. You know, they, they were sort of a carnal sect of the Jews who believed in a this-life-only outlook. Uh, 
And so the, the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they thought they really had him stumped. Uh, they presented the case of this woman who had died, according to the Old Testament law of, excuse me, a woman whose husband had died, and according to the Old Testament law of Moses, the husband, dead husband's brother would marry his wife to bring up seed to his name. Well, the second brother married, died third brother, seven brothers all married to the same woman. And the Sadducees thought, we got him, we got him now. He'll never be able to answer this. Uh, uh, whose wife will she be if there's a resurrection? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 uh, says, verse 29, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels in heaven. But, he says, as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, here's here's the whole point that Jesus is making there. He, he quotes uh, what God said to Moses at the burning bush, uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. God said to Moses at the burning bush, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Present tense. He didn't say, I was. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years at that point. But God did not say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He said, I am. Jesus is posing his whole argument on the verb tense that was used in that conversation. And so what Jesus is saying, since God said, I am, he's obviously talking about someone who's still alive. God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So Jesus believed that the scriptures were so thoroughly and completely inspired that he could make an argument based upon a verb tense. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Right? You know, I was I I looked at an old uh, Old Testament passage back in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about Uzzah and just the fact that as they were carrying the ark of the covenant and it it started to rock all, all that you know, it doesn't seem a lot uh, or very trivial or it, it's very trivial to some. But all he did was reached up and touched the ark to hold it, to, to steady it. And because of that, God struck him dead. And we, we realize that in uh, the book of Chronicles, it teaches us that only the Levites, the the um, the uh, at, at that time were to carry the ark and not to touch it. They were to carry it on, on on poles, but in this instance, in Second Samuel, Uzzah reached up and touched. You know, it seems pretty trivial to us. Yeah, why but, would that be important? Yeah, yeah, why would that? Well, because God said so. Right. God said, "Don't right. do this. Don't touch it." God is a God of detail. We, we learned that throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament. God's a God of detail. He cares about the particulars. Yes. Yeah. Exactly right. Here's another example. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul references the the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. And he said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one to thy seed, which is Christ. Paul there says that going back to the promises that God made to Abraham, you can make an argument based upon whether the word was plural or singular, seed versus seeds. You get the idea that that Jesus, the Apostle Paul, they, they believed that the scriptures were 
completely and literally inspired, uh, even to verb tense and to singular, singular versus plural words and so forth. Down to the punctuation mark, of Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Think not I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fill. Now verse 18 of Matthew chapter 5. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The jot was a small letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle was a punctuation mark. Jesus said none of that, down to that very yeah. smallest detail, yeah, is going to be passed away. Jesus said those, those were there because God wanted them there. One time, a number of years ago, 30 years ago or more, uh, I signed up for a Hebrew class at a local Baptist university. <laughs> Hebrew is incredibly hard. I, I have such respect for people who master the Hebrew language. Of course, Hebrew is written backwards. I mean, they write from the right to the left rather than from the left to the right. But the but the alphabet, I dropped the class after two weeks while I could still get most of my tuition money back because I couldn't even master the alphabet. Mm. Inc- because the letters, I mean, just one tiny little tick mark or stroke changes a letter from one to another. But the jot and the tittle are a couple of the, the most minute pen strokes in writing the Hebrew alphabet. We would say, like jo- uh, uh, dotting an I or crossing a T. As Grant mentioned in his email. Yeah. And, and, but Jesus said those are there because God wanted them to be there. I like the, the Greek word for jot is iota, and we still use that word today. And we use not it one iota, not no. iota. There is is there part of the Old Testament that is just there because it, man put it there, or is there part of the New Old Testament that shouldn't be there? Not one iota of it is what you'd say in the first century. And the same thing you'd say today. Uh, everything there is from God, and there's nothing that should be omitted. Exactly right. What about the the word and the the small conjunction and you know repent and be baptized and then back in the in the Old Testament in in Genesis um, where God said you will that you will die Satan said you will not die you know these these small words that they they mean something can, and they can and they have the potential for completely changing the 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 meaning exactly and right. if i can't have confidence that that conjunction is there or that little word is there because god put it there then i can't have any confidence at all in what i uh, god's instructions for me are yeah all right look at your emails there jacob all right kent says um on the evening that christ instituted the lord's supper in mark chapter 14 verse 26 Indicated they sang a hymn and then went out to the Mount of Olives. We must recognize that approved accounts of action constitute examples that must be followed. However, in view of what is revealed in the New Testament regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper, in addition uh, as to how the New Testament church observes such, there is no evidence that this specific event or incident constitutes a binding pattern for us to follow today. Rather, such as an example of Christ and the Twelve observing the Passover under the Mosaic Law. This is not an example of the church observing the Lord's Supper. Biblical historians are careful to point out that it was the custom of the Jews to sing some of the psalms during and at the close of the observance of the Passover. The recording of such a minor detail gives us information as how the Jews gave attention to even minor details of following the word of God. Okay, so I think his point there is that there's a difference between a binding example. There are some things stated that are not binding examples for us, but they're still accurate. The, okay. the, the information is accurate, but it may not constitute a binding pattern for us to follow today. Well, here's one from Jim. Consider the prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2. It mentions Bethlehem Ephrath. Uh, 
There are at least two Bethlehems, so in thinking about the the birth of the Savior, it would be the Bethlehem in the land of Judah, Bethlehem Ephrath, where the Savior would be born and not any other. It is specific as to the name and place. What if there was a prophecy dealing with someone being born in Columbus? Which Columbus? Ohio, Georgia, Indiana, etc.? But if it identifies it as Columbus, Ohio, that eliminates any other Columbus. So okay. he says some of those details some are of the very details, important. So, so the, the distinguishing between the two Bethlehems was a critical, it seems minor, but it was critical to to us understanding the fulfillment of prophecy. And Grant references Matthew 5, verse 18, uh, till heaven and earth pass away, not uh, the smallest letter or stroke shall pa- pass away from the wall till all is accomplished. The inspired word of God, Grant says, is inspired down to the very verb tenses. Thank you, Grant, for that. All right. We are up against a break for this week's bullet point. When we get back, where are we going next? We're going to talk about um, how do you respond to critics that say the Bible is wrong on historic, specifically about historical references. Okay. We're going to take that up on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So instructed the apostles Peter and Paul, 1 Peter 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20. We wonder if we are in this post-COVID time still doing this effectively. Mask wearing and social distancing have brought about some significant changes in personal conduct. People have been afraid to greet one another in any meaningful way. Certainly a holy kiss would be inconceivable to most folks at this time. Even giving a right hand of fellowship, Galatians 2 verse 9, has been diligently avoided by lots of people during the height of the pandemic. With faces covered in surgical fashion, it's hard to even see a friendly smile. Unfortunately, all of this has led to heads lowered, eye contact avoided, and personal interaction brought to a near standstill. We are not criticizing those who are at risk for taking reasonable precautions, certainly not. But at the same time, we all must remember our obligation to demonstrate our love and affection for our brethren. COVID or not, we are a spiritual family and we need to express our devotion to one another. Paul never failed to greet his brethren, often by name, in his epistles. Even in some of his so-called prison epistles, he sent his salutations. Think of that. Any such open communication might have been used against him in his impending trial. But never mind that, Paul reached out to his brothers and sisters. How you greet others may be modified by the times we are now experiencing, but the obligation to do so still remains. We have a special relationship and bond. Show that you value this. Greet one another. Find a way. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Alex Dvorak, reminding you to listen to the virtual Bible study every Thursday night, 8 o'clock Central Time. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. I remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us at thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeu.com. Kyle, what about the videos? Are there any videos out on the Internet that uh, people need to be watching? Well, there's a few. I mean, I think you need to, on YouTube, I think you need to be going to College View Live Street. There you yeah, go. So, That's uh, a place to be. Other YouTube videos can wait. You just need to get Include that in your Bible study. I think that's a good accent to your Bible studies. So, we're doing a new thing on Wednesday yeah. nights. Uh, we're we're studying marriage, and then we're going to get to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In this quarter, it's going to be a quarter long study, thirteen weeks. Uh, last night we got heavily into preparation for marriage and choosing a mate. We got our young people sitting in with the adults 
for this special study. And uh, we had some good discussion about that. I think that's such an important thing, and our young people really need it. But that's, you're building a playlist, I think, Kyle, for those Wednesday night studies. And so that will be available for, uh, for uh, on our website, College View Livestream. That's a different channel than this virtual Bible study channel, of course. And Kyle makes you look good. He tries, but it's pretty job cut out for him, but he does a good job of that. All right, so we're talking about the infallibility of the Bible on the program tonight. All right, so um, the fourth question is, how do you respond to critics who say that the Bible is wrong on historical details? Um, typically, the argument is that the Bible can't be true because it gets history wrong sometimes. Now, if you think about it, if God is the author of the Bible, he ought, to, he ought to know history flawlessly. So if you could prove that there's something wrong with the Bible, that, that it makes some historical point that's not accurate or true, then we say, oh, we got a big problem there. But you know what actually is the case is Critics have done this over and over and over again. There just seems to be no accountability when they're proven wrong. But they say, oh, the Bible's wrong on this historical note. Well, then, sometime later, an archaeological discovery is made that confirms that what the Bible was saying was true. Those skeptics are not, never around to, to own up to their, the, to their mistake. They move on to something else. But almost always, in fact, Without exception, I think, the supposed historical errors of the Bible have been proven to actually be accurate by virtue of archaeological discoveries. And, of course, archaeological discoveries in the last century have just been overwhelming. There's been more archaeological discoveries in the last century than there were combined all through history before that. And those archaeological discoveries keep confirming that the Bible is historically accurate. I'll give you an example of something. For a long time, skeptics criticized the Bible because Moses is credited with writing the first five books of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch. But Moses is credited with writing those first five books. Jesus said several times, Moses said, or uh, written in the book of Moses. I, I wrote down one reference here, Mark 12, verse 26. Jesus talked about the book of Moses. Mm-hmm. So Jesus himself said Moses wrote the, those books. Well, skeptics and critics said, ah, there you go. There's, a, there's an obvious mistake in the Bible because people didn't even know how to write when Moses was alive. Moses couldn't possibly have written those books because nobody in that time frame even knew how to write. Writing hadn't even been invented yet. So that was, that was the standard line to attack and criticize the Bible. Well, then, and of course, to us, this is a well-established fact, but but a hundred years ago, they discovered that, oh, wait a minute, people did know how to write. In fact, people knew how to write well before the time of Moses. Archaeology has proven that. And so, again, the strong criticism of the Bible has gone by the by because men have discovered what is actually true. The criticism was based upon what we didn't know versus what we do know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the folks who made those criticisms that were later proven to be wrong 
people didn't discredit them and throw them out. They should have said, well, we're not listening to you anymore. That's well, what they yeah. would have done to the Bible, you know, yeah. if they yeah. were, well, that, but they continue to be able to propagate their lies and misconceptions. But that, that typically is the case with skeptics and critics in almost any field, but it's certainly true in religion. All right. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I, I, I turned over to Romans chapter 1 in verse 20 where it read, where it reads, For since the creation of the world has in, invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made so that they are without excuse. You know, e- even just looking at nature itself, we can see the the handiwork of God and it. It's all true. It's it's been created by him, and, and to me, I don't I don't have a problem with that. But I, I realize some people do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Kent says uh, the Bible is not wrong on historical details. Let the critics specify the details that they think are in error, and their fallacy of thinking will be answered. All right. And uh, Jim says critics often suggest the Bible is wrong on historical details. Yet the inspired writers put the right people in the right place during the right time. Luke is especially good at, about mentioning events and people and history recording that he is correct. Consider Luke 2, 1 through 3 and Luke 3, verse 1. Jesus confirms that the, the fact that certain events, the creation, the flood, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Exodus, Jonah being swallowed by the whale, all as actual events, as well as confirming Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Elijah, etc., as real-life individuals and not myths. History records such individuals as living. Men often seek to prove God's word by their experience, but it is our life that is to be measured by God's word and not the other way around. Good. Now that's a that's a good one there. You know, people want to, you know, they want to they want to fit the, the Bible into their little mold and was what they you know what is what their experiences are, what they think it might, might must be, versus just letting the Bible uh, be what it is and then conforming yourself to it. Yeah, you know, he mentioned. I think he makes a really good reference. Luke in writing the book of Acts. Uh, I preached a whole sermon just several months ago on the accuracy of the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts is extremely accurate as a historical document, and, and that's what we would expect if it's from God. Absolutely. And Grant up in Franklin, Tennessee, says, I would ask to give examples of such. In reality, historical details are very friendly to the scriptures. Uh, Grant says, yeah, the, the, the more you look at history, the more you realize the Bible is correct. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to move a little bit more with a little bit more speed here. Let's let's introduce this fifth question, and we may have to finish talking about it on the other side of the break. But number five, does the fact that we don't have the original documents of the Bible make it impossible to trust the Scriptures? And that is a fact. We don't have any of the original documents of Old Testament or New Testament uh, books. Mm-hmm. Well, does that mean then we can't trust what we've got? I got an old illustration. Let me give this illustration, then we'll take our break, and we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more. What if there was this woman who, who you know, we have we have a church potluck supper, and she brings a dish, and it is absolutely delicious. And several of the other women say, i got to have that recipe. So she... She doesn't have access to a copy machine. She, by hand, writes the recipe on three cards and gives them to three women. Time passes. The original woman realizes she has now lost her recipe. She doesn't have the original anymore. 
could she could she get back to square one? She could by going and comparing those three. And especially if those three agreed, if those three were identical, based upon those three identical copies of the original, you could be very certain what the original, though now lost, said. Right. So if you expand that example by thousands, that's what we have in, in regards to the Bible. We've got thousands of, of manuscript copies of the of of both old and new testament it's the scriptures. most well documented book of antiquities exactly right by so, by not even a close and comparison. And, that, and, and 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 everybody has to acknowledge that that's not that's not a prejudiced or unfair statement it is exactly true and it's by multiples above anything close to it as far as documentation exactly right. so no we don't have the original but we have so many copies and and copies dating back to the time we'll talk when we come back to the break we'll talk about the dead sea scrolls and the significance of the dead sea scrolls to the old testament scriptures but in regards to the new testament scriptures we've got copies of the scriptures dating to the second century ad within a hundred years of when they were originally written we've got some some documentary evidence of the bible we don't have the originals uh, why we don't have the originals who knows I, i've heard people speculate that if we had the originals men would make them objects of worship maybe we don't have the originals we don't know why but we got so many copies of the originals that we can we can be absolutely confident that we know what the original documents said surely the catholic church wouldn't start to worship those things you think you think they maybe oh yeah when they when you think about some of the relics that they have enshrined in their cathedrals yeah they would yeah Yeah. all right uh we're going to go to the last break and when we get back we'll take your thoughts on that uh that uh idea what about the originals does the fact that we don't have originals mean that we can't trust the bible and uh well maybe you might add in your comments why do you think we don't have the originals it's all pure pure speculation but maybe some reasons why you think god didn't allow those originals to uh survive don't go anywhere we're back going to the top of the hour right after this now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent survey asked Americans what helps them to grow in their faith. People offered a variety of answers, prayer, family, friends, reading the Bible, having children and so forth, but attending church services did not even crack the top ten list. 
Although church involvement was once a cornerstone of American life, U.S. adults today are evenly divided on the importance of attending church services. While half, 49%, say it is somewhat or very important in their lives, the other 51% say it is not too or not at all important in their lives. That information is via Barna Research. The Word of God says in Hebrews 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. And we're going to the top of the hour looking at the infallibility of the Bible, and you asked before the break, should we trust the Bible because we don't have the original manuscripts? Well... I'm going to add one thought, because this wouldn't convince an unbeliever, but but for us who who are believers and who have faith in God and 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 His promises, First Peter chapter one verse twenty four, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. God has promised to preserve his word. Now, I, I, I couldn't make that point to a skeptic or a doubter or an atheist. But for us who are people of faith, we, if, if we have an all-powerful God, he's powerful enough to preserve his word. Right? Yeah, over in Matthew chapter uh, 24 and verse 35, where it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Absolutely. All right. Let's, we got we got some emailers on that, Jacob. Well, Kent says uh, it doesn't make it unreasonable to believe, even though we don't have the original manuscripts. When one takes into account all the extant manuscripts, in addition to ancient versions, some which are older than our existing manuscripts, and compare them to the writings of the early church historians, such gives adequate evidence that the Bible is an accurate document worthy of our trust. We've talked about that in the past, and Kent makes some excellent uh, points there. You don't even have to look to the Bible itself. The original manuscripts of the Bible or or, or, re, or later manuscripts of the Bible, you can look at the writings of early ch- church historians where they quoted those, like much like you would do in a bulletin article today maybe. Yeah. Uh, I've heard it said, though, I've heard someone quibbling about whether this is an accurate statement. If we lost all copies, all manuscripts of the Bible, you could re- reconstruct the Bible just by piecing together all the quoted passages that are found in secular writing. Someone said they didn't know if that was exactly true, but I'd be inclined to think you could get the the vast majority of the Bible because it's been quoted so thoroughly through the centuries. Here's what Jim said. He says, we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts to trace the Bible back. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls to confirm the accuracy of the Old Testament. What translation errors exist, we know about because we have ancient manuscripts to compare them against. The evidence of the accuracy of the scriptures is greater than any writings of men. There are far more manuscripts to confirm the accuracy of the scriptures, which men still doubt, than for those of the life of Julius Caesar, which no one doubts. They don't doubt. Exactly right. All right. Yeah, we have a little bit of a double standard there, it seems, in the world today. And then Grant says, the answer is found in the field of textual criticism, which takes existing material and seeks to determine the original text. For example, in determining the text of the New Testament, we have Greek manuscripts, ancient versions, and quotations from ancient church fathers, or the patristics. 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 Yes, that's right. It should um, fallible pronunciation there. It should be emphasized, therefore, that concerning the great bulk of the words of the New Testament, there is complete agreement among textual criticism. And that's from Henry Henry Thiessen in his uh, introduction to the New Testament. Good, good, Grant. Thank, Thank you, you Grant. so much. Uh, there, some reference was made there to the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
you know, the, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls helped to confirm how accurately the scriptures were copied and preserved through the centuries because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were initially discovered, you, I think everybody's heard that story, you know, uh, a, a reclusive cult of Jews lived uh, on the shores of the Dead Sea. And they were very committed to the scriptures. They meticulously hand copied the scriptures, sealed those ancient documents in in clay jars, and they stored them in these caves uh, near the shore of the Dead Sea. Uh, the story, and I assume it's true, but the story is always told is some shepherd boy uh, less than a hundred years ago uh, was there and. Just out of boredom, he was seeing if he could throw rocks into those cave openings up on the cliff above him. And when he threw rocks in there, he could hear he could hear pottery breaking. Crawled up there and discovered these these jars with these ancient writings in them. A lot of them were lost because they didn't know the value of them. Some of them were used to kindle fires and mm. so forth. Mm. But but when they when it was discovered what they had, and they and of course and, and the government of Israel has been meticulous in preserving those things, uh, those copies were a thousand years older than any Old Testament manuscripts before then. In other words, we we had some. Suddenly, we were able to jump back a thousand years farther back in time. Well, that, okay, so what happened during that thousand-year period? Did a lot of errors creep in? Was there a lot of mistakes? No. They're, they're almost identical. Uh, so you were able to sort of do a time warp of a thousand years and be able to find out that the more current documents were still just completely accurate to those that were a thousand years older. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were amazing archaeological discovery that proved the reliable transmission of the scriptures through the ages. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, it's very, very important. Um, we can have confidence and trust in what we have been has been preserved, uh, as our listeners have said. Um, and uh, you asked the question, what about uh, why don't we have those originals? Well, one of the reasons why, maybe because of man's proclivity to worship things that even things that God instituted and ordained in Second uh, Kings chapter eighteen. We read about Hezekiah destroying the bronze serpent that Moses had made. And he did that because they were worshiping it as an idol. And can you imagine if you had the book of James out there? Written in his hands. Don't you imagine people would be burning incense to it like they were to the bronze serpent? Yeah. Rather than just taking it for what it is. Again, like you said earlier, that's speculative, but that sure makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But rather than rather than taking it for what it is, there'd be more interest in the physical parchment or whatever that it was written on. Yeah, and and the Catholic we know that the Catholic Church has been notorious in and coming up with fake artifacts and 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 uh, paying homage to them, uh, all, all kinds of you know splinters of the cross that Jesus supposedly died on. Uh, I even heard that in one cathedral in Europe they have a vial which supposedly has drops of Mary's breast milk that Jesus drank as a baby. You know, come on. Yeah, but that just indicates the the proclivity of people to try and worship some object rather than worship God. All right. We've got one more question. All right, real quickly. What about the miracles? Now, now, if the Bible is trustworthy, how 
come there's some stories in there? In fact, there's a lot of stories about miracles happening. Miracles don't happen. Miracles don't happen, but the Bible says they did. And wouldn't that be reason enough for us just to say the Bible is fallible because it tells stories that can't possibly be true? How are you going to approach that one? That one's, Dwight? yeah, that's a, that's a Dwight question, Dwight. Well, you know, when you stop to think about miracles, what were miracles used for in the first place back at that time but to prove the spoken word? And we can find that um, over in Math, uh, or Mark chapter 16 and verse 20 and also in Hebrews chapter 2. And the miracles were used just for that purpose. We didn't have the written word back at that time, and we needed something, something was needed to prove to these people that what they were saying was from God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. That, again, it goes to the very purpose that miracles fulfilled. What was their purpose? To be verified. They were meant to be out of the ordinary to prove that these men were speaking the revelation of God. Uh, again, if we've got an all-powerful God who could give us the Bible, then why would we think it a stretch that he's a powerful enough God that he can empower people to work miracles? That doesn't seem like a stretch. Here's what Kent said. No biblical, no such biblical accounts of miracles give evidence that the Bible is the word of God. If the evidence of biblical miracles were introduced into our court system today, such would give proof through the eyewitness testimony of credible witnesses that the messages of the Bible are true. All right. Uh, Jim says miraculous events fall outside the realm of natural law, which is why they are miracles. But the fact that we have eyewitnesses to testify to the fact of the, that those events did happen. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus was watched over by the whole city of Jerusalem, as well as the chief priest, high priest and religious leaders, the Roman governor, Pilate and his soldiers. They beat him, scourged him and crucified him. They knew that if he was dead or they knew if he was dead or alive. When he was taken down off the cross, it was not humanly possible for one to endure that torture and still have been alive. Yet the tomb was empty and nobody was found. A guard was set to watch at the tomb to believe to believe that the disciples who had fled the night of Jesus's betrayal could all of a sudden have courage to overcome a guard and steal the body flies in the face of all reason. All the miracles mentioned were not done in secret, but out in the open to demonstrate the power of God and the fact that he has nothing to hide from men and purposely to demonstrate his power and give reason to believe his word. Miracles are cause for belief, not for disbelief. The account there of the resurrection of Christ is especially one that uh, we don't have to wonder if the Bible is true or not because the skeptics in the, in the first century believe that Jesus yeah, did let, rise let, from the let, let, me, let me read a, a quote here from John chapter 11. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, it says, uh, verse 45, John 11, verse 45, Many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed on him, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Here's the people who hated Jesus, who would ultimately be responsible for having him crucified. And yet, notice what they said. This man doeth many miracles. Yeah. So, I mean, even his, even his enemies had to admit that he, that he did. The, that's reason enough to believe that the miracles actually happened. Absolutely. And then is it uh, Matthew chapter 28 that talks about the guards who went to back uh, to the Jews and said, you know, 
he's gone. Yeah. And they had to pay them they bribed off them to lie. To lie yeah. about it because they knew that he that uh, this did not happen, that he wasn't stolen, that he had risen from the dead. Yeah. All right. Um and then Grant says we confirm the accuracy of the Bible in areas that we can then we have to believe the facts that we cannot confirm but believe by faith. Days of creation, changing water to wine, healing the lame beggar, raising the dead, Jesus' resurrection, etc. Grant makes a good point. We're going to have to have faith. At the end of the day, you still you do have to have faith. Sure. But it is an, a, a logical, a reasonable faith. faith. A That's reasonable right. faith. That's right. All exactly. right. We're out of time. We're out of time. Uh, we've got a question from Brian in the chat room that needs to be saved for one of your um, smorgasbord. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll get. Well, Brian, we will hopefully get that uh, before long. The answer to the question is yes, Brian. But we'll get to it. Okay. All right. Um, Well, Dwight, it's been a good uh, hour with you tonight in person. Yeah, it's uh, It's the same as every Thursday night. Although although we get to see your face. Yeah. You have to look at our face every Thursday night. We got to see yours tonight. Yeah. Well. he thinks I'm, he's come to the Mediterranean coast in in Tennessee with the warm weather mm. after their frigid winter in Iowa. He's 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 he and Michelle are saying, "Oh, this is nice weather. We're a little chilly tonight, but they think it's warm." Oh, that's right. Well, drive, but, the, yeah, it's ahead. been good to to be here tonight and and uh, get to meet Kyle for the first time. There you yeah, go, person, the legend. So. That, yeah. um, the man, the legend. And, and uh, we can thank you in person. Thank you for participating every week on the Virtual Bible Study and for your comments. They are very helpful to us and to our listeners, so thank you for that. And thank you for taking time out of your, on your vacation to be a part of the program with us tonight. And, Kyle, thanks for helping us get it out tonight. Always good. Glad to be with you again, Dad. Thank you. Thanks, Jacob. Enjoyed the time. You did okay. I'm a little worried you might have forgotten your your skill set. I I did miss it. I missed it immensely. At one point, you were a little slow on the uptick there. Yeah, I'm, I'm back, though, I think. Well, we appreciate you for being a part of the program tonight and hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We hope to make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.